Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This also is God's holy word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that man, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. May we go to our God and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, God, for this reminder about the seasons and the times, that they are entirely in your hands. Father, we acknowledge that our life is in your hands, from birth even to death. And Father, help us to trust you with eternity, and that trusting you in eternity, how much easier it should be for us to trust you in our day-to-day activities. For you prove yourself faithful to us every single waking moment of our lives. Father, we pray that you grant us hope in Jesus Christ, that he indeed is our Lord and our Savior, that you guide us with your eye upon us. We thank you, Father, for your, for your precious love. We thank you, Father, for your fatherly care. And we pray, Father, that your encouragement, your guidance would be upon your people, that we would trust in your perfect plan, that we would trust in your steadfast love. Father, we know that you are wiser than we are and that your ways are far higher than our ways. Father, we pray that the gospel would be made known, would be clear, and that we, your people, would embrace it, that if any are here, young or old, who have not embraced this good news, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, transforming hearts, giving life when we have only death. And Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Put on this blindfold. Take my hand and follow me. Put on this blindfold. Take my hand and get into this car and follow me. You realize... And you hear the stories, like Richard Warmbrand. The path from his regular neighborhood to going off to some camp, a gulag, was perhaps a little bit more forcible, but it involved a blindfold, a hood, and people threw him into a car, and then he ended up in some kind of 
unfriendly camp. Putting on the blindfold, taking the hand, following me, has everything to do with who that person is. Perhaps it's merely a surprise birthday party. Put on this blindfold, take my hand, follow me. Are you going to trust that person? You think about the romance of providence, God's providence. Ultimately, what you're doing is you have a blindfold on. You're taking God's hand and you're following him. You can think about all the legal ramifications. You realize that there is such a thing as unlawful detainment. Meaning that you don't have to by force handcuff someone or hold them to the ground for it to be unlawful detainment. There are civil penalties for unlawful detainment. But putting on a blindfold, even if you did it willingly, and you took someone's hand and you were forced to follow them, even if you did it willingly, could still be unlawful detainment. But you must ask yourself, in the life that you're living, you have a blindfold on. You don't know what God has planned for you. You don't know why he has done what he has done. But are you willing by faith, not knowing what will happen, not knowing what God has planned, are you willing to take his hand and follow him? That is the question about your life right now. When we think about this book of Ecclesiastes, the author is talking about life under the sun, living under the curse due to the fall. the sin of Adam and Eve, and the ramifications it has on all of mankind. There is an attempt by the author to come up with meaning and satisfaction and purpose by general revelation, by observation, by experience, and then there is coming to a good understanding by God's special revelation. Wisdom that's arrived at exhausting all the human options. So if we follow your line of thinking based on your man-centered view, where do we end up with? Where do we end up? We end up at a place of darkness, a place of sadness, a place of meaninglessness and worthlessness. It's that conclusion from a modern understanding, well, it looks like all you've got left is a bullet for your head. This is what this is what uh, our the author Kohelet wants us to get to, to realize, you know what? Let us eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. That's all that life is. And there's times in this book, we've seen one at the end of Ecclesiastes 2. We also see one here in uh, verses of chapter 3, 11 to 15, where there are these moments of clarity, where there, there's clarity regarding, wait a minute, he's, he's stopping this, this man-centered view and this uh, logical conclusion to my wrong thinking to say, wait a minute, there's some truth that he's telling us here. He's he's, uh, putting on a different hat and he's no longer following that that man-centered thinking. In chapter 2, he had talked about various things. He talked about the pursuit of wisdom how wisdom uh, cannot get us out of the problem of death. He talked about pleasure. He talked about work. And at the end of chapter 2, he follows up regarding the matter of the hand of God. So eat, drink, and take enjoyment in your work, because this is from the hand of God. And it's as if there's a dialogue going on in Kohelet, is being asked, well, wait a minute. It's my work. I've done it. I've labored. What do you mean it's from the hand of God? And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, oh, wait a minute. We need to make sure we cover the basis. You don't realize that, yeah, you, you, what you see, what you experience is that you're doing the work and that you, you earned it. But... God is sovereign over all things. Let's, let's make sure we haven't missed that. Because, yeah, you work and you get a wage. You, you, you sow and you uproot and you have food. 
But all this happens under this big giant umbrella of God's sovereignty. And that even the wages that we get from our work, that 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 is actually a gift of God. And that's what he says here in this chapter. So earlier he said it's from the hand of God. Here he's saying it is a gift of God. So he's covering this entire topic of God's sovereignty regarding our work, regarding our timing. And regardless of the busyness of life and the, these patterns, these cycles, he's saying, no, all of these things are controlled by God. The author of Ecclesiastes speaks about time. And time is seemingly cyclical. It goes in a circle. And there are these patterns that keep on repeating. And here, the author is saying, no, wait a minute. You notice the cyclical patterns. But we ought not to think about time as simply these repeating patterns that just go on and on, the monotony of life. He's saying, no. In God's view, time is linear. Nothing gets repeated. There's a, there's a beginning. And then there's an end. And there's eternity. And there is meaning to all of it. Because our God is actually controlling, not the big picture, but he's controlling every single detail from beginning to end. And that's, that's the two halves of this passage in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. You have verses 1 through 10. That's the uh, rat race, <clears throat> the, uh, the, uh, the cycle. And then in verses 11 to 15, you have the heavenly, the God-centered view where time is linear and you have the grand plan of God. So the truth that we see, amidst man's busyness in life's activities, God's sovereignty rules over all and his eternal plans cannot be thwarted. Amidst man's busyness and life's activities, God's sovereignty rules over all, and his eternal plans cannot be thwarted. The first point, we'll look at this in two points. The first is the, the flurry of life, of, of events in life. The flurry of the events of life. And the second, God's control of the events of life. So the first point, the flurry of the events of life, <clears throat> in verses 1 through 10. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Let me stop there. I'll, I'll cover more as we go on. So the author begins in verse 1 with this rule. He starts off with this rule. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And before we get off on the wrong track, you think... Back, even among uh, the secular, secular world, there's, there's a realization of the beauty of this poem. It's poetic, the structure of it. But there's often a misunderstanding regarding the purpose of it. Often a misunderstanding regarding the purpose of it. So I think back, was it in the 1960s, which is before my time, there was this group called the Birds. It's not B-I-R-D-S, it's B-Y-R-D-S. The Birds, they, they sang this song, right? Uh, turn, turn, turn. And this, this was the lyrics they didn't make up. They stole it from the Bible here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And the way that men generally interpret this passage is in each of these verses, when it says a time to be born... It's as if they insert uh, a suitable or an appropriate time to be born, an appropriate time to die, and all these things. That's so on down the list. <clears throat> but I, I, want you to, I want you to understand that the point of this poem, the point of this text, is not that there is a suitable or an appointed time for everything, and you must know what and when. That's not, that's not the purpose of it. When you see the latter half, Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 15, what, what you see there is that it's not about a human-centered view. What we're trying to get you to see is that it is a God-centered view of time. We're busy looking at all the details about this close, and what we don't see 
is the bigger picture of what God has for us. And just so that you are clear, it's not about human choice, not human-centered, verses 1 through 8 or 1 through 10. It's not about human choice and making the right decisions of what to do, when to do it. And the proof of that is in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Who of you picked your birth? Who of you will be able to pick your death? And so there, it's not a matter of your choice. We're born. No one has a choice in their birth. Not where, not from whom, and no one has our choice in our death. We accept it as it is. No one's had that choice. And there's also this matter, end of verse 1, everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. The repetition of the phrase, under the sun. And earlier, in previous sermons, I may not have highlighted the difference, the mention of under the sun and under heaven. In verse 1, for time for every matter under heaven. And that under the sun and under heaven at some times may, may be used synonymously, but I hope you can see that what we see as humans with our eyes of flesh is what happens under the sun. But what God wants us to see is that what happens under heaven. There's a difference. One, we, we view and understand and experience by the eye of flesh, and the other, we learn from his living word, and that's what happens under heaven. So this time and these events are about what God is doing. It's not about what we're accomplishing. Also, I should point out that this is a description more so of what is rather than what should be. I hope you understand the difference. It's it's a description of what is in life. So there's one thing about describing life. This is what happens in life. Rather than this is a description of what life ought to be. Because there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Well, should we be killing? Well, there's a difference between murder and killing. And I hope you understand that there's a significant difference. The killing is, killing is neutral, meaning killing simply means taking a life. Murder is taking a life with a motivation of hatred or a despising and animosity towards man. There's a difference. Uh, for Christians, there very well may be a time to kill. But there never should be a time for murder. We never should be taking someone's life out of hatred, out of despising uh, man, out of a personal vendetta, or out of despising the image of God, either way. So, a difference of what is and what should be. Let me look at the events themselves. You realize that all the span of time, all the span of time is encompassed within these descriptions. That typically what we have are uh, things that are beginning and end. So you have being born, so a time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, and time to pluck up what is planted. So you think about that. Planting and a time to pluck up what is planted, that's, that's work. And uh, for those friends of mine in uh, central California that I got to meet some time ago, they were in the, uh, the almond business. And for them, see, it's, we pronounce it almond, right? But they call it almonds, right? And Central California is the, is the almond capital of the world. So you think about these big, giant almonds that you can get. They're grown there in California. They're not native there, but that's, that's where they grew, grow. And, and there you have, there's the cycle of seasons. That one season, you're, you're going to plant. And another season, you're going to pluck up. Uh, there's times when the trees, so there's a little difference between wheat and almonds, but the bottom line is there's a time for prepping and there's a time for harvesting. 
And after harvesting, after some time, you will plant again or graft again. And when you think about how these cycles go, how many years pass by, planting season, harvesting season, then planting season, harvesting season, and, and two years have passed. And as you continue that cycle, how many years of your life have gone by? Then you think about time to kill and a time to heal. Perhaps we can think about this as, as what God's doing. He takes life and he heals. Some of you have spent some time in the hospital. Some of you have spent time in the sick bed. You can think back, well, well, that was this chapter of my life where I was confined to the bed or I spent uh, two days or a whole week in the hospital. And you can look back at those chapters and those cycles. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh that there are reminders about fools and laughter. That's not to say that all laughter is foolish. But oftentimes, the scriptures describe that a time to weep, a time of seriousness, a time of grief, how important those are for our lives. That fools are those who only amuse themselves and are only laughing all the time. But there's no time to think about the serious things, the eternal things. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. There's a casting away of stones and a time to gather stones. There's some cultural significance here. So, talking to an older friend of mine who told me one of his first jobs was uh, clearing, clearing rocks out of a field so the field can be used for growing plants. Uh, and and how, how much he made back then in the era of the Great Depression was at a dollar a day. That was, that was hefty wages. And then, then you think about a time to gather stones. So, so casting them away is you've got to get them out of the field so you can use the field to grow plants, crops. And then gathering together of stones. This happens at various times. You think about what happened uh, in the book of Joshua. And, uh, you know, Various memories, some, some kind of uh, monument of gathering of stones and making a monument to remember something, something about God, something about a, a covenant between men. That's a gathering of stones. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. This is simply put, that there are times where you embrace friends. And there's other times when you realize that friendships have come to an end because of some type of significant betrayal. And that time for embracing is no longer there. Time to seek and a time to lose. Time to keep and a time to cast away. Then verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow. This is also cultural. It's very similar to the time to mourn, time to dance. That there's a time when you think about in Job, where his father's children died, he rent his garments, he tore his garments. This is not something that we typically do, but for the Jews, they tore a garment and they threw dust on their head. This is culturally a, an expression of grief and what people do in their grief. So tearing a garment, expression of grief, sewing it together when the grief is done. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. This often uh, that we all need to learn this one. But you realize, even in the life of Jesus, for him it was true. There was a time to speak. That he taught publicly. That he taught the word. He taught himself. He explained the Old Testament to all God's people. All who would hear and there was a time for silence. That when he was there uh, before Pilate, when he was there, that Pilate was asking him, do you realize that I have the power to condemn you? And I have the power to free you? And before the high priest, that they're questioning him, 
and he is completely silent. And others have said, hey, wait a minute, if, if you're innocent, you need to testify that. And you ask, well, what was Jesus doing there silent during those times? Well, he did provide an answer for Pilate. Hey, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. But other occasions, are you not going to answer? There was a purpose for his silence, not because he had nothing to say, not because he was, he was guilty. You think about it, even the warnings of Scripture. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Do not throw pearls before swine. Perhaps you've seen this. Talking to people. That there's something significantly missing. That there is a huge blind spot. And as you're talking, you're asking the question, what's the bigger picture? Not seeing it. Well, at times you ask, is the other person willing to hear? Or are they just going down a mental list of these are all my arguments I have against you? These are all the reasons why you're wrong and I'm right. There's a time for silence. You know what? I'm here to listen. That's all. But there may come a time when your friend is open to hearing. There's a time for silence. A time to love and a time to hate. Perhaps it's not so much uh, the hatred of animosity of despising someone. You think, of, think about Psalm 139 when the psalmist says, Do I not hate those who hate you? Uh, ultimately, the psalmist is saying, Hey, do, do I not reject Am I not separating myself from those who hate God? There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. At various times in a nation's life, that there are wars that come and wars that go. Some of them are quite long. And they exhaust the people. They impoverish the people from it. And so God is at work through all of these periods. And as, as you look at what God is doing, what we see is what's happening around us, the immediate. The immediate thing. This is what I was involved in. This, this is how I occupy my time during this period. It's a simple question of where were you when you found out that President John F. Kennedy was, was shot and killed? Or where were you when you found out that, uh, that the Twin Towers in New York City were hit by planes? You can remember those details, significant details. In these events, you have the symmetry of opposites and things in between, the cycles of life described. And often to us, life is a repeating cycle. And notice in verses 9 and 10. Normally in these sections where Kohelet, the speaker, goes about on his complaining or his rants, he asks the rhetorical question, and then he provides somewhat of a similar answer each time. So verse 9 is his rhetorical question. What gain has the worker from his toil? That's usual. What's unusual is verse 10, he doesn't come up and doesn't state the same answer. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And what's lacking there, notice he doesn't say, and this is vanity and a striving after wind. Or he doesn't say this is vexatious. He doesn't say that this is grievous. <clears throat> he doesn't say those things. And what we ought to notice is the absence of that statement. Because he's actually going somewhere with this. So the, either the monotony of life in those cycles, <clears throat> or the pains of life in those cycles, they pass quickly. And children, I'm going to warn you about something. Your life 
will appear to pass more quickly as you get older. Your life will appear to pass more quickly as you get older. Every one of the adults, the mature saints here, will confirm the very thing that I've said. That when you were in second grade or third grade, a week seemed like a really long time, especially if you had a a, a lot of homework to do, a lot of class time. But as you get older, as you start to work, especially if it's clockwork, you check in, you check out. So Monday morning, you check in, and then you check out, and it's, it wasn't Monday afternoon or Monday evening. It was Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Or you check out, it's May. You check in, it's December. Wait a minute, what just happened here? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, this is what life will be like. And I said, everyone here will confirm that. And here, we need to ask ourselves, are we, are we forgetting the work of God, the hand of God in all of this? So one way to look at it was the, was the blindfold, take my hand, follow me. Another way to look at it is the tapestry. So in verses 1 through 10, the busyness, the flurry of life, you're looking at the back of a tapestry where you see these various colors, lines going in and out, and, and you're looking at it, you're saying, this is all some kind of garbled mess. This was, this was a two-year-old attempting to do art and knitting or, or tapestry, whatever, whatever that artwork is called. Who did this? And you can look at it on the back side and say, Mr. Artist, Mrs. Artist here, this was uh, a work in progress, and uh, this, is one of the, this is one of the artist's earlier works. And you realize, as you turn the tapestry over, that you see this intricate beauty. And that's perhaps where we are is that your life, you look at all the pains that you come across. You, you look at all the griefs, the disappointments. And as you focus on those things, what you're focusing on is the needlework of all these random colors and strings hanging out. And you say, this is a garbled mess. My life, everything around me is a garbled mess. Society, my family. And then... You flip it over, and you realize that God is actually doing something with what appears like this garbled mess of your life. The question is, do you have the faith to believe, put this blindfold on, take my hand, follow me. There's somewhere that we're going. We're going to get there. Are you going to complain? Hey, wait a minute. This is a violation of my rights. You know, this is unlawful detainment. This is against my will. Or are you going to say, wait a minute. God, I trust you. My life is in your hands. You control heaven and earth. You control my birth. You control my death. You control everything that happens in between. And every single emotion that I have of joy and sadness and grief, that you're with me every step of that way. That should change the way that we experience life and the details of life. And so we read earlier in Psalm 90 that our lives end with a sigh and then we fly away. That's the description that Moses gives. Our, end, our lives end with a sigh and then we fly away. And he, he mentions, teach us to number our days. You realize these cycles, your life will pass quickly with these cycles. If you're on any shift work, some of you are on shift work. Oh, boy, how quickly that time passes. You keep track of them by the time cards. But teach us, Lord, to number our days. Are we observing your mighty hand? Are we trusting in you? When you think about some of the difficulties of life, of dying, of healing, perhaps... You might ask yourself, what is the purpose of all of that? What is the purpose of of the pain that I experienced 
this many days or this many years ago? Well, you ask yourself, uh, do things work well? Is your car a dependable car on sunny days in the springtime, in the summertime? Or when it's 50 below and your car is still running in 50 below weather with ice and, and snow, oh no, that, that is a reliable car. And in the same way, come to realize, well, God, I was depending upon myself all this time, and it wasn't until you pulled the rug out from under me that I, I hit my chin on the concrete when you pulled the rug out from under me that I realized I'm not standing on my own strength. I wasn't depending upon you. I was depending upon myself. I was depending upon all these other things. Hey, I was doing the work. And I was earning my money. Hey, hold on. It's all of of my grace. Even even, uh, the work that God gives us, even the satisfaction and the joy that he's given us in the work that we have, it's of God's grace. And it's only when we're down to... No options. No options at all. I've called this friend. I've called that friend. I've asked for this person to pray for me, that person. But ultimately, when we're all alone, and there's no one left to call, oh, and, and then you prayed and asked God for his help. And you admitted, God, I'm exhausted my resources. I have no wisdom left here. What do I do next? And it's through those cycles it's through those emotional roller coasters that God proves himself faithful to us. Are we willing to be guided by him? Are we willing to follow him during those times? And so that's the first point, the flurry of the events of life. We have the second point, the control of the events of life in verses 11 through 15. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. It's so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here. The author begins with this statement. Either you will love it by faith or you will hate it by unbelief. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This is God's design. It's made everything beautiful in his time. This is the golden question for you. Has he made everything beautiful in its time? Yes. Because I'm, I'm reading here, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. No, wait a minute, God. I have some complaints. What about this thing in my life and this and this and this and this and this and this? Are you going to go to God with this huge laundry list of, hey, listen, these are all the things that are wrong with my city. These are all the things wrong with my house. These are all the things wrong with my family. These are all the things wrong with with my wife. These are all the things wrong with my children. These are all the things wrong with my church. These are all the things wrong with my pastor. These are all the things wrong with my elder. These are all the things wrong with, and the list goes on and on and on. You know what? Someone did that. His name is Job. He started down this path. Started down this path. And then you start to read the end of Job. And God steps in there and says, okay. God says, now it's my turn to talk. Where were you when all these things happened? And and as you hear God talk, you you see Job kind of getting smaller and smaller and smaller until, until he's like hiding behind a dime. And he says, I put my hand in my mouth. Who was I to speak? And, and so, I ask you this question. Has he made all things beautiful in its time? Perhaps, being honest with ourselves, you and I are not quite at the point where we say, yes, indeed, he has. How is he going to fix this? How is he going to fix that? And you see, this is where, this is where the author, Kohelet, is going. Because after our passage, he's addressing the injustices of life. See, notice he doesn't talk about it here. He talks about God's linear, singular plan. His, his plan A, his 
plan A that never fails. He doesn't have a plan B. He's the only one who never needs a plan B. But then he addresses the injustices later, because perhaps that's where some of you are wondering, what about all these things that have happened to me, to others? How is that beautiful? Huh? Well, he didn't say he'd make things beautiful right now, right away. It's in time. <clears throat> Here, I think about this eternity in man's heart. Verse 11. Also, he put eternity in man's heart. What does that even mean? Eternity in man's heart is what separates us from the beasts. <clears throat> the beasts, the thinking, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's thinking like a beast. Right? When you think of it like a beast, <clears throat> have you ever wondered when this predator, apex predator, goes and attacks this animal and eats it, do you think there's any animosity that the predator has to the herbivore prey? I would think not. Well, how come he didn't have the, the kindness to, to put them out of their commission? Some, some of these animals, they, they don't have as big a jaws. They eat their animals while they're alive. You, you think there's, anima, there's hatred involved? And seems like it's not. Right? That's just, this is warm meat. What's wrong with that? And, and so, thinking like a beast, we're just here, we go through these cycles, and then we sigh and we're done. God has given us eternity in our hearts because that's what causes us to say there must be some grand purpose. There must be some meaning. There, there must be answers for these questions that we have. What are we, why are we doing what we're doing? Anytime, children, you ask your parents the question of why, that's actually a, a theological question. Question of why. Why, why are we doing this? And, and what we have as parents, as adults, we ask those questions at one point. And since we didn't get very good answers from, for them, that we eventually stop asking them, and we eventually stop thinking in that way. Well, children, please, don't stop thinking in that way. It's important to ask the hard questions, the why questions. It's not the adult Sunday school that, the, the adult Sunday school teacher who gets stumped. It's, it's the teacher for the four and five-year-olds. You know it. Those children ask these questions that you have stopped thinking about and you just don't have an answer because they're so fundamental. And so Kohelet, he responds back now with these two questions or these two answers. Earlier in verse 10, he says, I have seen. So this is, this is the philosophical view of empiricism by experience. The British were known for this. It's what we've experienced, it's what we've witnessed, it's what we've seen with our eyes. And then he responds in verses 12 and verses 14 where it's translated as I perceive, but probably better, I know. Other versions say I know. So he says, I, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. <clears throat> and so here, he's saying, here's God's grand plan. It's not cyclical, it's actually linear. And he's controlling every single detail. So it's, it's not just about the big picture and the details get worked out on their own. No, 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 God controls every single detail along that plan. And perhaps some of you are wondering, wait, wait, I, I can't, can't wrap my hands around that. What, what about sin? Oh, that, that's probably the big question. How, how does evil originate, right? And, you know, uh, Elder Wayne referred to Joseph and his brothers. And you think about what happened there. That Joseph's brothers, as comical as they were, they had him in a pit. They're making this decision. All right, let's just sell him. Let's just sell him to these, to these men on this caravan. Besides, he's our brother. We can't, we can't spill his blood, so let's just sell him as a slave. Right? We kidnapped him, and we sold him as a slave. And, and then after all of this, at the end... Genesis 50, he's talking to them. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of a people by a great deliverance. And it's not as if he's saying, whatever you did, 
You're excused of it because it was part of God's plan. No, no, no. He's saying, no, no, that was still evil. You, you need to answer for that. So it's never an excuse. Right? You know, you can't say to your sibling after you hit him or her in the face, say, hey, hey this is part of God's grand plan. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. You, you're, you're in trouble. You can't get out of that by blaming God. <clears throat> and, and so here, sin is part of God's plan. That he, he redeems, he pays for sin. He judges sin. One of the two. And here, you and I have to ask ourselves this question. Verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So, you and I have to ask ourselves this question. Are you and I joyful? Are we being joyful in the lives that God has given us? Is there joy and satisfaction that we have in this life? Because here, here's the pattern. <clears throat> Something better for them than, the, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Have you noticed this? If you're not joyful, are you going to be doing good? I would think the answer is no. If you're lacking joy, chances are you're, you're doing this. You're staring somewhere about your navel <clears throat> or an inch below it. And doing good is just out of the question at that point. God knows that. So that whatever difficulty you and I face, even as we undergo the sufferings of life, whether it's a direct result of our own sin, or whether it's just for the general consequence of sin, are we living life in joy, trusting God, taking the hand of our Master, following Him? If we're not doing that, then we're not ultimately going to be doing good. Because part of our good begins with taking joy in following Jesus Christ. In Psalm 90, verses 14 to 16, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Meaning that not only... Should I see this glorious power manifested? But to our children and our children's children that they would see the goodness and the glory and the greatness of our God. That this is God's gift to us. It's from the hand of God. And then the second thing he addresses in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God has, the God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Here, this is that plan A. It's perfect. It's perfect. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Perhaps that time hasn't come yet. But this idea of, hey, did you like this piano performance that I had? You know I'm not talking about myself because I don't play the piano. And, and someone to hear is, oh, you know what? It only would have been better if you did this. It only would have been better if you took this out. Well, now, now you've said something about the piece, about the artist. And so also with God. No, no, your plan would only have been better if you'd done this. The answer is no. No, God's plan is perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing removed from it. And how sin and misery and death and destruction and genocide all fit into that picture. God has the answer. Perhaps some of you are, are thinking, wait a minute. Well, Frank, you you don't have the answer to this or to that. Well, on one hand, we're called to make God's word known. We're, We're not called to make excuses for God and to explain everything that he has done or is doing. God doesn't need a... a a defender in that way and that you and I don't have to be able to explain each and everything that God has done that all of these things that God has done that they're good that he knows the end from the beginning so before any day happened he had planned it all and we're merely on the path of carrying it out we have a different view of, of time than God. We think of past, present, and future. He thinks kind of like what is. Because 
future is already done, just as the present is as good as done. And his view is different than ours. He speaks about things in the future as if they're already done, because he has, again, his plan A that never fails. And then you think about the plans. You think about the sins. Well, what about those sins against me? What about those sins that they, people have committed against me? Well, what about the sins that people committed against Christ? When you think about the time and God's control of time, think about the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Are you still fixated on those sins against you? Even as I tell you God's word about the man who took upon sin for himself, our sins. So if you're focused on, well, that guy sinned against me and that woman sinned against me, where are we when Christ who came to die at the appropriate time God sent him? That we're still thinking, wait a minute. What about his sin? Well, he had none. What about the death that he died? He died the death of a condemned criminal, of a sinner, a shameful death on the cross. Yet, that was purposeful because it's the death you and I deserve to die. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You notice he didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the righteous man. He died for the unrighteous man. The very death you and I deserve to die. And so you think about the sins. That there were sins involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And at the perfect time, you think about all the delay. You think about this man, Cohelet, what he had to deal with. And you think about what we have today with the Word of God complete. If you and I are struggling today regarding what God is doing and our pains and our miseries, how much worse do you think it would have been for God's people who didn't have the full Bible to read? That there were sins committed against Jesus. That was part of God's plan. His predetermined plan that even by the acts of sinful men, Jesus would be betrayed. That there would be false testimony offered against him. That there would be sinners who injured him, who caused him to bleed. And that he would die on the cross on behalf of sinners such as you and me. We think about God's grand plan. It involves us. It involves our redemption. It involves our joy and satisfaction in Him. And that life living is worth it because we're following Jesus Christ. Blindfolded in what God is doing. We can't see what His grand plan is, but are you going to take His hand and are you going to follow Jesus Christ, trusting Him, even in the pains and the sufferings and the miseries of this life. And we go to our God together.